Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Richard Haas. He is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, where he has served for the past 14 years. I thought it would be a great idea to get Dr. Haas in because... More than any time in the past, I don't know how many years, uh, international events are driving uh, not only the debate, but but the headlines and policies that we see everywhere, whether it's the Brexit vote in the UK, uh, whether it's things like Middle East issues and ISIS uh, and, and the Iran nuclear deal. What's happening in China with the South China Sea? What's happening in Russia? Uh, even even normalizing relations with Cuba are, are significant events, and these are all outside of the U.S. borders. I can't ever recall a time uh, in recent history where overseas events have been more significant, more important to both the global economy and to international relations. Uh, I think you'll find Professor Haas or Dr. Haas uh, he has taught uh, at the Kennedy School. Uh, quite fascinating. He is about as knowledgeable a person a- as you'll ever hear. He began in Democratic Senator Claiborne Pell's office. He also served in both Bush White Houses. He's nonpartisan. Uh, he he very much uh, has a fairly moderate and centrist view. He's he's an extremely rational and and logical guy and and a lot of what he says uh and a lot of the discussion that took place today uh really very much is just if you were to stop and and do a deep historical dive into each of these subjects they would inform your perspective and very much drive your decision making in a certain direction uh that is consistent uh, on both a cultural, diplomatic, and and global basis, uh, I found his conversation to be completely refreshing uh, and quite fascinating. Uh, for those of you uh, who are aware of what goes on in the world, you know what an expert Haas is. And for those of you uh, who are not very well informed about the state of the global affairs, this is going to be a crash course in international relations. Uh, I found it to be an absolutely Brilliant and fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Dr. Richard Haas. 
This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Richard Haas. He is the president of the Council of Foreign Relations, a position he has held for the past 14 years. Uh, Fascinating career in government as a legislative aide in the Senate, in the Department of Defense, in the State Department. He was awarded the Presidential Citizens Medal for his contributions during the U.S. uh, Operation Desert Shield in 1991. He has been a special advisor to both President George H.W. Bush uh, in the National Security Council, as well as President George W. Bush in the Department of State, where he served as principal advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell. Richard Haas, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be here. Uh, I, I left out half of your CV. It's, it's way too long. You are the author or editor of a dozen books. Uh, perhaps the one I'm, uh, our, our listeners might be most familiar with is The Reluctant Sheriff, the United States After the Cold War. And you have a new book coming out in January, uh, World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy, and the Crisis of the Old Order. I am confident that a lot of the questions and topics we discuss today are covered in the book, but but let's jump right into your early career. So you you leave, was it Oxford? Did I get that right? Yes, you leave Oxford with a master's and a PhD and pretty much start as a, a senatorial aide. Is that right? That was your first first job. And then you end up in the State Department and the Department of Defense. How did all that come about? Well, after uh, Oxford, actually during Oxford, I spent a year splitting between my master's and my doctorate working in the Senate uh, as an aide on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to Senator Claiborne Pell, who was a Democrat from Rhode Island. I really just wanted some experience. I'd been an academic and wanted to see how the sausage was made, and I got the chance. After that, I then spent a couple of years uh, working at a think tank in London, a place Mm -hmm. called the Institute for Strategic Studies, essentially doing a postdoc. And then uh, after some conference I spoke at, a few people who were working at the Pentagon said, hey, would you come and work with us at the Department of Defense? So I said, "Uh, great. And so I went and worked at the Pentagon. It was a fantastic opportunity because about less than six months after I got there in 79, you had two big historical events. You had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan Uh and you had the revolution in Iran. And I was assigned with a very small group of people to plan for what would the United States do in that part of the world because we had very few capabilities, very few plans. And suddenly I was thrown at this in part because I had written my doctoral dissertation on this part of the world. On the Middle East. On the Middle East, on the Persian Gulf. What, what was the name of your doctoral dissertation? Filling the Vacuum. And it was essentially the American reaction to what was called the British East of Suez withdrawal. Uh, meaning the meaning for for listeners who may not be historians of that part of the world, when the Brits uh, were were occupying most of the Middle East at a certain point, they pretty much drew random. Some people have called them random borders on their way out, and and really left the the political and diplomatic borders uh, we see today uh, uh, to some degree as a cause of some friction between some of these states. Well, after World War One, which is what you're alluding to, there was the, the British and French ministers and their subordinates essentially did draw the map, a lot of which is the contemporary Middle East. I was really focusing on the Persian Gulf mm-hmm. and where the Brits stayed longer and they left essentially in the early late 60s, early early 70s. 
But soon afterwards, again, you had these major tests with the, the twin crises of Afghanistan and Iran. And I was lucky enough or unlucky enough to be one of those who said, was asked essentially to, to plan for it. So I had an amazing early experience in the, uh, in the Pentagon. Indeed, what's now Central Command, the force which mm-hmm. has fought several of the wars, including the Gulf War, the Iraq War, and all that, I was involved in the creation of that force. So I, you know, it was a little bit of being in the right or wrong place at the right time. And then after that, after the Carter administration ended, I was uh, put on the transition team for the State Department for the uh, Reagan administration and went so, over to the so Reagan you start, State Department. You start as a Democrat under Senator Pell. You you are now in the Department of Defense under Carter, and then you're part of the transition team for the Reagan White House. Right, and it wasn't that I was a political chameleon. I was essentially apolitical at the time. Right. Uh, I think I was probably a registered independent at the time. At some point, I became a registered Republican. And even now, I run a, to skip ahead of several decades, I run a, a nonpartisan institution. I, I don't feel particularly partisan in, in my bones. And I'd like to think, maybe it's naive, that there's a place in American politics, say, within the 40-yard lines, mm-hmm. where what you it's might a great call, visual. <laughs> where uh, conservative or moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans can find common cause. And if we can't, if we can't have that center, then I think we as a society are in serious trouble. The the fascinating thing is, I totally agree with you. I think the, the fascinating schism is that most of the public, or a lot of the public, lives in, in between the 40-yard line, so to speak. But everyone in D.C. seems to be in their respective end zones. Well, there's a reason for that. There's a, a principle that you see in the literature of political science called intensity. And the whole idea of intensity is what matters in American politics, and really in democratic politics more broadly, is not absolute numbers, but it's the intensity with which political participants bring to the process, whether it's voting or money or time. So what this means is small numbers of people with great intensity can overwhelm large numbers of people who have virtually no intensity. It's the reason, for example, that 90% of Americans may favor background checks, but the NRA wins the gun control debate. That's an intensity issue. Exactly. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Richard Haas. He is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Not too long ago, we had the big UK vote to leave the EU. I think a lot of people were surprised by by the outcome of that. So let's start out. And I know you are intensely familiar with the region because of all the work you've done in Northern Ireland. Let, let's start out very simply. Why was the Leave campaign victorious? In part because it was a referendum on the status quo and people who were, for one reason or another, unhappy or disaffected or angry or worried about the future vented and supported the the leave vote a lot of them were not particularly well informed exactly what would be the precise consequences so i think it was something of a of a protest vote and it was very hard for the remain camp to make a persuasive case what were they were supposed to say well things aren't perfect but it's better to stay than it is to leave that, that is not that's, exactly just that's the case that is the is, entire but, but that doesn't tend to get people out of their seats much less to to, to vote. So you had an anemic showing on the Remain side, and you had an impassioned, if uninformed, uh, turnout on the Leave side, and the rest, as they say, is history. 
You know, in, in investing in the markets, um, enthusiastic ignorance is not a good way to make money. But no. apparently in politics, it's a successful strategy. Well, except there's an awful lot of voters' remorse and a lot of people afterwards. I think, if, indeed, if the referendum were to re- be repeated, it would go down in, in flames. And at the risk— There, there were some people who, who seemed genuinely surprised that this wasn't just a— a poll, this was a policy vote with real consequences. And even though technically Parliament disposes this was advisory, it's mm-hmm. extremely difficult for British politicians to simply say, never never mind. So, so <laughs> one way or another, Brexit in some form is likely to happen. I would say, uh, and I, I'm prepared now to be called an elitist, to me it's a real sign that you ought not to be deciding major, major matters of public policy through referendum. It's why the founders of the American political system created something called a Congress, created something called an executive. The whole idea was to have representative government rather than direct democracy. And I think what we've seen in Britain is a very expensive lesson of what happens if you have direct rather than representative democracy. It's quite fascinating. Your background is such that you spent a lot of time negotiating and helping uh, Northern Ireland uh, broker a series of treaties with uh, the UK. Scotland recently voted to stay with the UK. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of the reason was the membership in EU. Is it possible that we're going to see Scotland and Northern Ireland, both of whom were strong Remain supporters, Say, hey, you know, there's the benefits of being in the UK are less than being in the EU. We're, we're gone from the Brits and we're going to join the continent. Or is that just wishful thinking? It's quite possible. What it, will depend, what it will depend on more than anything is if the British government goes ahead with Brexit, the new government under the new prime minister, Theresa May, and if, depending on the terms, there's, there's Brexit and Brexit, mm-hmm. and this is... This is totally uncharted waters. So we don't know what would be what will be the details of potentially a new relationship between a a post EU UK and and Europe. But depending upon the details, it's quite possible that you'll have a second Scottish referendum and in this time if there is one it would pass because people would vote to to stay in Europe. And I believe there's a decent chance you'll have a so-called border poll in Northern Ireland in which people would vote to to join Ireland. So I think that Brexit, one of the many reasons I opposed it, has the potential to lead to the dissolution of the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, it has the potential to tremendously increase centrifugal forces within Europe. And I just say for those who aren't familiar with it, Europe is one of the great historic accomplishments of the last three quarters of a century. Twice in the 20th century, Europe was the venue for great wars, the 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 two world wars. The whole idea after World War II was to so knit together Europe, and France and Germany in particular, that war would become unthinkable. We ought not to take that for granted. And I'm worried if Brexit goes ahead, depending again on the details, it could have knock-on effects throughout Europe. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, so given the negotiations um, that you undertook in, in Ireland, mm-hmm. um, if you were advising either the, the Northern Irish or the Scots, what sort of, and I don't want to use the term elitist in a negative way, <laughs> uh, instead of saying elitism, let, let's say educated and informed uh, policy pronunciations, what, how would you advise them today? given the most recent Well, again, I would, I would wait and see 
what the details are, whether Brexit goes forward. If so, what are the details? And Assume then- it goes forward. So let me digress. Assume it goes forward. Are the Brits going to get a better deal with the EU or a worse deal when they're not part of it? I'm not ducking the question. The, the honest answer is nobody knows because there's a debate within Brussels whether to give them a better deal or not to because a lot of people in Brussels fear that to give the British a better deal would create a precedent. Right. And suddenly and encourage 20, other people. 27 yeah. other governments may want their own, their own better deal. So it I, has to be, from a game theory perspective, it has to be a worse deal than they previously had. Well, it could be a deal... That would require less of them, but would also give less less mm-hmm. to them. And the real question is whether net-net they would come off better. And I think if you're sitting in Northern Ireland or you're sitting in Scotland, you then have to make the calculation, are you better off in a post-EU UK or are you better off going out on, on your own? And I think that will literally be the debate, certainly in Scotland and potentially in Belfast and beyond. So let's talk a little bit about um, the stakes here. You mentioned, or I mentioned, an uninformed electorate. How truly uninformed were the people who were casting votes there? Uh, did they actually know they were voting for policy? Did they think this was a poll? Uh, there, there have been some suggestions that while the Remain camp was not as crystal squeaky clean and transparent as they should have been, the Leave campaign was industrial level uh, fabrication. Uh, how did that impact the actual? <laughs> I may steal uh, that phrase. I like that industrial, industrial level. level. There's a. There's a. Um, uh, I'll send you the link to this Scottish or Irish professor who who uh, I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. him, but but that was that was his well, take. two things. I think there's two things to say. One is that, or maybe even more than that, one is that there, there were polls that came out beforehand which suggested that the factual basis, shall we say, was uh, incomplete. People just in many cases didn't quite understand what the relationship was between Britain and the EU and so forth. Second of all, there was industrial uh, misrepresentation of the uh, facts about tr- the flow of money, about consequences, about Im- Im- immigration uh, issues. And so now uh, it's a little bit like the hangover. What you have is a, is a country that went out a bit on a political binge and now has to deal with the, uh, with the consequences. And again, it reinforces my instincts that you don't want to decide major issues in a democracy this way. So two other questions about Brexit that, that I would be remiss if I didn't ask. Brexit seemed to be quite the surprise to, to not only the financial houses uh, and, and bookmakers, but lots of people. What other European surprises might be lurking out there? Well, it's not the first surprise we've had in Europe in the last two or three years. We had Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. which, shall we say, was a, uh, an unfortunate surprise. We had the massive flow of immigrants from Syria and the Middle East to Europe. We then had terrorism. So this, in some ways, if you add it up, is at least the fourth surprise mm-hmm. in the last two to three years. Not, and what's so surprising about this is that Europe for decades was the part of the world with the fewest surprises. Right. It seemed to be the most staid and predictable. But I would think going forward, you could, uh, we still don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. We don't know what other countries may decide to do their own versions of, 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 an, of an exit. We could have problems once again in Greece on the financial side or with some other country in um, Italy, for in sure. Southern, in, in Southern Europe, you know that from what it is um, you do. Unfortunately, you can imagine without a hell of a lot of imagination, uh, another terrorist uh, problem Mm -hmm. uh, in any number of uh, countries. There's uncertainty about Russian intentions, not only in eastern Ukraine, but with some of the other uh, small states that 
that border it. So I add all this up. And again, I'm struck by if we had had this conversation three years ago, we never would have talked about Europe. Uh, Old Europe, boring, nothing going on there. And suddenly Europe is, is, you sense it's in play. And one of the lessons I draw from that is it's more difficult to have assumptions now. It's more difficult to have a sense of the givens. There's a, a, a sense of greater, not just speed of change, but breadth of change. And I, mm-hmm. I just went, I, three years ago, I didn't have the imagination, I'll be honest with you, to see a lot, to see this coming. You know, I was just in Europe for a conference, and I was astonished at how really soft the Greek economy is when you're on the street. And then in Italy, mm-hmm. southern Italy is is better than Greece, but Rome is like New York City. Rome is booming. It is, I don't know if it's a tourist town or what. I mean, we know it's a tourist town, but when you look at Rome, mm-hmm. it is a, a hopping city, a very, very economically active city. Makes you makes me think twice about how Italy is broken into different halves and and why part of it is doing so well and part of it isn't. Right. What you have in Europe then is is increasing inequality. You have high levels of un, unemployment and un- underemployment. You have demographic distributions that aren't even in terms of wealth and and, and employment. And you sense there's a lot of fault lines in Europe, mm-hmm. far right and far left policy, uh, parties. Uh, both could come to the fore. You, you asked before about surprises. That's another part of it. So Europe at one and the same time, is there's elements of boom and there's real elements of, of fragility. Mm-hmm. And as long as we're, we're discussing Brexit, people have tried to draw parallels between the Brexit vote and either the Sanders or Trump candidacy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see any parallels between the two? And is it possible in the United States we end up with a Brexit-like surprise? The short answer is absolutely I see parallels. What you see in both sides of the Atlantic is widespread pushback, even rejection of important aspects of globalization, mm-hmm. whether it's immigration or, or free trade uh, or, or, or other issues. And I, I take the Brexit vote as something of a wake-up call. Warning shot across the bow? Is it that that much? Absolutely. We don't have a direct equivalent to Brexit, but again, what it shows me is that, for example, historical support for free trade agreements is just not there. What you have right now sitting in the Congress, Mm -hmm. a major trade agreement, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, involves the United States and countries, I think it's 11 other countries, make up around 40% of the world economy. Right now, that trade agreement is parked. I'm not sure under what circumstances it could muster the necessary uh, support. And what this tells me is that here's one of the basics. Free trade used to be bipartisan support, Democrats, Republicans, and so forth. At the moment, you'd have to say not just as the jury's out, but the the forces are probably stronger against it than in favor. Well, that that. That's one of the American parallels to Brexit. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Richard Haas. He is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, where he has served for the past 14 years. Prior to that, he has an extensive resume, both in the Department of State and the Department of Defense, as well as the White House and U.S. Senate, and is the author of 12 books on foreign relations. Let's jump right into the conversation about trade and globalization. How important is globalization to the modern economy? And I include not just wealth creation, but but job creation. 
Well, the answer is it's it's central. Think about it this way. We have, what, 320 million people in the United States? That's out of a, a world of roughly 7 billion. That's 4 to four or 5 percent. Uh, we're, what, 20-odd percent of the world's GDP? Another way of saying 75 to 80 percent of world GDP lies outside the United States. So if we are going to sell, a lot of what it is we we do has to be outside the, the borders of our our own country. We're just not a large enough market to be self-sufficient. So, so given that perspective, and I know it's obvious to folks like you and me, why is there so much opposition to trade? One way to answer it is that trade on occasion does cost jobs, and whether it's cheaper labor elsewhere or people produce better products, say in the area of cars, was a reality for a long time. So trade displaces. What I think also happens, though, is that trade is blamed for things. It gets scapegoated. Mm -hmm. So the biggest source of displacement in jobs, of job elimination, is not trade. It's technology. It's productivity increases, which, by the way, is scary for the future for things like robotics, 3D printing, artificial intelligence. If anything, the potential for job displacement might accelerate. And I don't think we've begun to think that through as a society, what we're going to do. But in the meantime, trade is the scapegoat. There's a venting. And just like we were talking about Brexit before, that became a vote where people expressed a lot of their frustrations with the status quo. You don't get a chance to vote on globalization, but you do get a chance to vote on grade. Uh, on trade. And I think what's happening is that trade is carrying a lot of weight that it really doesn't deserve, but people are, are turning towards it to to vent their frustrations. If you really want to be scared about automation, there's a book out, um, I think the author's name is Ford, called Rise of the Robots. The technology discussion is fascinating. The future uh, impact of that technolo- technology it's a little Malthusian for my taste. It's a little oh. too end of world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it there is no doubt that there are huge societal shifts coming right. due to technology. It's uneven. Certain types of jobs, certain sectors of the economy are more vulnerable. I just don't think we've really begun the public conversation about to, how is it we better prepare workers to deal with some of the challenges, and that's everything from transition assistance financially to education and retraining. And we just can't put a moat out there. We can't pull up the bridge. We've got to think about how is it we compete in this world and the political conversation isn't close to the conversation we need to have. So last year, we saw a ton of news out about hacking of various institutions in the United States. Mm-hmm. Specifically, there's a building in China that's primarily filled with their Department of Defense and their intelligence community. And these folks are hacking U.S. corporate sites, U.S. military mm-hmm. sites, and U.S. government uh, information. How has this gotten as out of control as it appears to be? Is there any chance that this has gotten better, is going to get better? And what sort of things uh, might they have stolen from us? Well, in general, in the whole area of cyber, the technology has outpaced the rules. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like the old Wild West, and there's no sheriff. A lot of people out there with guns, and we're we're seeing it all over. So the U.S.-China relationship is simply one part of a a larger uh, situation. Look, some forms of... uh, espionage and the rest we carry out and it's carried out against us and if we're not protecting our data shame on us Mm -hmm. so the idea that the office of personnel management got hacked 
That was a responsibility on our side. Now, the Chinese are doing more than espionage. They're also doing property theft, and mm-hmm. that is something that we have got to sanction them on if they won't stop. You're talking about patents and designs, Absolutely. and I Absolutely. mean, they, they're, some of their military aircraft and other things, it's clear that that's not in-house stuff. Absolutely. So again, there's a difference between, it seems to me, what is espionage, and we carry that out, and this is just the newest domain of espionage. And intellectual property theft, which needs to be stopped, and the Chinese have agreed to stop it. The question is whether, one, they meant the agreement, and two, whether they will then implement it. So there's big, there's big questions uh, there, and this is you know one of the 600 things on the U.S.-Chinese uh, agenda, and I think also in future trade agreements, this question of intellectual property protection is going to play a, a larger role. It needs to. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Richard Haas. He is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Let's jump right into to some of the rest of the world and and how what we do here in the United States impacts uh, our own ability to to influence events. The 2008-09 financial crisis, how did that impact the American ability to project power around the world? Well, it hurt us in lots of ways. It hurt us in terms of lost resources. We simply didn't have as much wealth to devote to what it is we do in the world. It hurt us reputationally in many ways. Suddenly, the desire to emulate the American model was, uh, to put it gently, was not uh, was not what it, it, it was. And I would just think more broadly, it made people uncomfortable with the world in which American leaders and officials were making decisions that had tremendous consequence for them over which they had no influence. Mm-hmm. And no one likes to be in a situation where they feel vulnerable but unable to influence. And that's what the rest of the world felt. So here we are, it's seven, eight years later, the economy in the U.S. has recovered substantially, the rest of the world, you know, someone had described us as the cleanest shirt in the hamper, Um, I kind of like that description. Given that recovery versus, let's say, Japan and China and Europe, uh, have we regained some of that influence and, or or have we made a a lasting image problem that that's going to affect our ability to influence events? It's a good question. The polls would suggest we've gained somewhat, but not that much because other areas have hurt us. We heard over issues. Uh, we, our reputation gets hurt over things like guns and violence uh, in this country. Our political dysfunction mm-hmm. has subtracted from our reputation. What we did in Iraq and what we didn't do in Syria has, has hurt us. So I think while we've recovered somewhat economically over the last eight or so years, other aspects that affect the way the rest of the world sees us. Uh, if it were a share of stock, we've lost value. So I want to come back to Iraq a little later. Let, let's let's go through some of the recent diplomatic um, breakthroughs or, or treaties that might impact us going forward. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal. I think people generally were confused by mm-hmm. by that, or at least some people. At first blush, it certainly looked like a positive. It kicked a uh, the Iranian bomb 10 years down the road. What's your take on our new treaty with Iran? The the joint agreement uh, to me was in principle better than either living with an Iran with nuclear weapons or going to war with Iran. 
but there are aspects of the treaty that, that give me real pause, uh, not just the transfer of wealth, but the fact that after 10 years, they can do whatever they want when it comes to centrifuges. In 15 years, they can accumulate as much enriched uranium as it is they want. So as you, as you rightly said, it bought us time, mm-hmm. but it didn't in any way solve the problem. And there's a lot of people who said, well, maybe in 10 or 15 years, Iran will be a, a much more reasonable, moderate place. That's possible. I wouldn't bet. I wouldn't bet a lot on it. And so my concern is that in ten or fifteen years we're going to face an Iran without constraints potentially. And in the meantime, a lot of its neighbors, seeing this possibility, may decide to develop nuclear options of their own, if you will, to hedge. So as bad as the Middle East now now is, and it's plenty bad by any and every measure, it's conceivable to see how you could have multiple moves towards uh, what you might call a pre-nuclear weapons status Mm. on the part of several of Iran's neighbors, and Iran could return to that. So this is not a a problem that's been solved, uh, to say the least. How important is the price of oil to not just Middle East economy, but how, how important is that to creating a nuclear free Middle East uh, and to at least have people negotiating in good faith to try and resolve some of their regional differences. Well, you're not going to have a nuclear free Middle East. You've got Israel that has nuclear weapons. Pakistan, I that was a secret. Pakistan, <laughs> Pakistan is not that far away, and they've got the world's fastest growing nuclear arsenal. Iran has virtually all the prerequisites of a of a nuclear weapon. Other countries are beginning to put into place certain types of nuclear power programs. So at the moment, uh, the idea of a nuclear-free Middle East looks to me like a pipe dream. So was it a big mistake to remove Saddam Hussein as the counterbalance to to uh, Iran? When Iraq and Iran were at each other's throats, no one really had time to develop a nuclear program. Well, actually, both, uh, both of them had elements of nuclear programs during their eight-year-long war in the 80s. But I take your larger point. Uh, I opposed the 2003 Iraq war, even though I was in the government at the time. I was at the State Department. Uh, one of the reasons was I did think that the balance of power between Iraq and Iran suited our uh, interests, and I was also wildly skeptical of our ability to build a post-Saddam Iraqi society to our liking. And I think it's fair to say that strategically, Iran was the greatest strategic beneficiary of the Iraq war. No, no doubt in my mind about that. The The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and, and that's some, a lesson that it seems we occasionally uh, Actually, forget about I would state the lesson differently. In the Middle East, the enemy of your enemy can still be your enemy. <laughs> and uh, we're paying a price for that. Yeah, to, no doubt about that. So you opposed uh, the invasion, but at the same time, you were one of the special advisors to uh, General Colin Powell. Uh, how did he wrestle with the issue uh, of, of going to war in Iraq? If anybody understood the consequences— mm-hmm. He, he more so than the civilians who were agitating for war. He he really understood what we were getting into. No, absolutely, and I would simply say that, like a lot of military men, he is often very wary of large uses of military force. He comes out of Vietnam, and he understands just how dangerous and risky it can be to American military personnel. He doesn't see war as an abstraction. He sees a war as 
as all too uh, real. So you know, he was the one who years ago, if you remember, developed the quote-unquote Powell Doctrine, the idea if you're going to go to war, do it with a lot of force for very clear objectives. And the problem with the 2003 Iraq War, we did it with a minimum of force, and we had objectives that military force could not accomplish. Military force can destroy things. It's very, very hard for military force to create things. So Powell was you know, properly skeptical, but then when it was clear the president uh, had made up his mind. This is President George W. Bush. Powell then tried to influence how we would go to war diplomatically through the UN uh, with with Al- and so forth. But there, I would simply say, and I'll let him speak for himself. But the preponderance of the voices in this administration. This is uh, George W. Bush wanted to go to war, some for reasons they thought the Iraqis might have weapons of mass destruction. Others thought that Iraq uh, was going to be an easy target, topple Saddam, and they actually thought very quickly and very easily you could create a democracy that would set a precedent and an example that the rest of the region wouldn't be able to resist. I was profoundly skeptical that that would uh, happen, but you couldn't prove it wrong. People believed it. They thought this would be a transformational act. And they, uh, and the rest again is history. In in hindsight, that view of taking our values and transferring it to a completely different culture seems a little bit naive, doesn't it? I mean, it, this Somewhere was between, the benefit of hindsight, but well, still, you didn't even need hindsight. I thought it was wrong beforehand. It was naive. I also thought it was arrogant, mm-hmm. and just simply, and it, it wasn't. It's funny. I, I got criticized once for suggesting it wasn't going to work and being called, if you will, the foreign policy equivalent of a racist. And I said, no, I'm simply saying <laughs> that the prerequisites for democracy aren't to be found in the contemporary Middle East. So we ought not to embark on a foreign policy which posits that as our objective. That, that, that's quite fascinating. Uh, let's talk about Cuba, which is another change that seemed to be mm-hmm. so long in coming. What do you think about this uh, reestablishing uh, relations with Cuba? What does it mean to us, what does it mean to them? You're right. It was a long time in coming, uh, largely because the opponents of change, even though they weren't more numerous, had a great political uh, intensity to their— South to their, Florida and and the impact exactly, on, on exactly. that election. So a minority, if you will, held us back. I think the feeling was with the end of the Cold War, there was no longer a strategic reason not to— open up that clearly embargo and isolation were not bringing about the kind of political changes we wanted to see in Cuba. So the feeling was, let's try uh, engaging with them. Let's try trading with them, having tourism. In a sense, ending their isolation, you then take away the excuse of the regime that it needs to keep control because of the American threat. Mm-hmm. And, and I th- so I think this is a worthy experiment. Uh, the other wasn't working. After 50 years, you still had communists in power. So let's let's try a, a different approach, and maybe this can uh, this can bring down, or at least bring bring about the mellowing, the moderation of of this system. And I think there's a decent chance. We've been speaking with Richard Haas. He is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the upcoming book A World in Disarray. American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. If people want to find uh, more of your writings, uh, CFR.org, is that correct? CFR.org is a good place to start. Amazon's another. If you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras, where we continue talking about all things uh, diplomatic and and foreign policy relations. Uh, Be sure to follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz, or check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. 
You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. Welcome to the podcast, Extras. Richard, thank you so much for doing this. This has really been um, fascinating. Uh, I last year uh, interviewed your predecessor, uh, Leslie Gelb, uh, and it was a fascinating discussion about uh, a different aspect of international relations. This it couldn't be more timely between everything that's going on in the world. You know, has business ever been better for people studying foreign <laughs> relations? It seems that. More than I can remember over the past, I don't know how many years, foreign policy issues are driving the news cycle. Uh, the sad answer is I think you're on to something. <laughs> but if you look at the Middle East, it's as close to chaos as, the, as any part of the world. We talked about Europe for a while. That is suddenly much on more fire. unsettled yeah. than we ever uh, imagined. Asia very uncertain future given who knows how China is going to play out, issues potentially with the South China Sea, the East China Sea, uh, North Korea. You've got India growing at 7 8%, but you still have the problems with Pakistan. And then you've got all the global issues from cyber to health to, to trade to proliferation to, to terrorism. So the, the international plate is as full. And then domestically, there's probably less consensus in this country about America's relationship with the world and at any time in, during my career. So the combination of a world that to some extent is unraveling and the United States where there's no longer consensus about what role we ought to play, the combination of the two, I think as much as anything else explains what's going on. You know, someone wrote an essay not too long ago about a pencil, that if you wanted to make a pencil, it would cost you, to just make it yourself, it would cost you about $3,000 as opposed to taking some wood and some lead and some metal and some rubber and buying it for 11 cents from someone else. And it was really, a, a, to me, a brilliant way to explain the advantages of trade. You, you couldn't make this yourself or the cost would just be so exorbitant uh, without free trade. Uh, it, it's amazing. I wonder how, you, you mentioned the scapegoating factor of it, how significant is scapegoating of trade, along with the demographic tra changes we've had, globalization, automization, how effective a technique is that for politicians trying to uh, touch a chord amongst the populace? Look, trade is important economically. It might even be more important strategically as a way of bolstering allies, promoting development, uh, tying others who are potential adversaries into relationships, which they'll, they'll think twice before they they overturn. The problem is that the, most of the energy in the domestic debate is anti, anti-trade. Mm -hmm. uh, it's blamed for a lot of things, including job loss and who knows uh, what else. So it's, it's going to be hard to win that debate. I think, you know, this president, ha Mr. Obama, has a few more months left in his term to try to begin to shape the debate about globalization and this country's relationship uh, with the rest of the uh, world, his successor, indeed his successors over the years, will have the same opportunity or necessity. Uh, but, I, uh, but I worry 
that it's part of a larger turning away from the world. I worry about certain elements of isolationism. We see it in both parties. It's not a Republican or a Democratic problem. In some ways now, the biggest debates in this country are within political parties. And we're seeing it, whether the opposition to immigration, opposition to uh, trade, more broadly, this pushback, rejection of globalization, and not just in this country. We see it throughout Europe and uh, elsewhere. So the lesson I take is if you want this country and this society and this economy to derive the benefits of globalization, then you would better go out and make the case for it. Uh, is it a matter of sharing the the wealth that is generated by that? Or how – because you referenced inequality in Europe and some inequalities here. How significant is globalization as a response to income inequality or anti-globalization as a response to, to income inequality? Well, here I'll probably alienate some of your listeners, but <laughs> I don't think inequality is the real issue. I think uh, the real issue is a, a loss or absence of uh, upward mobility. Mm-hmm. And we've had inequality in this country since day one. What, we, what we've also traditionally had, though, is tremendous opportunity and mobility. And to me, the, the goal is to resurrect that. And as long as people see real improvements in their standard of living and the prospects of further, then I think we do just fine as an economy and as a society. And people don't wake up every day angry about inequality so long as their specific circumstances are improving are improving and are likely to continue to improve. So, so you mentioned uh, uh, some presidents before. You served in both Bush administrations. Uh, how do you compare and contrast the different styles of of George Senior and 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 uh, George W. Bush, I would say that forty one the the father's administration was more formal. Mm-hmm. Decision making was a bit more orderly, process oriented. Uh, Is that yes, a sir. fair way to no, describe it? More more process oriented, a little bit more careful. I think the W's administration uh, a little bit less formal, a little bit less careful mm-hmm. in some of the. Uh, decisions as well as some of the follow-up. So I, I thought the, 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 the administration of the father, all things being equal, I think history will judge as a more, a more successful presidency. So let's talk about the, the third Bush, um, Jeb. I was kind of surprised that he seemed somewhat surprised by the Iraq question. How, how, how can we put that into context? He clearly has been prepping for this for a long time. And by all accounts, is a really intelligent guy. Yeah, Jeb Bush is very intelligent. I think he would have made a uh, a good president. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, he hadn't campaigned for a while and just camp- rusty. Is that is well, that I, the answer? Is I can't explain it. I wasn't involved. I can't be involved in campaigns. I'm just an observer right. like you are. So whether it was uh, rust or just people thought they could handle a question, and then it turns out they couldn't. I, I can't explain. Why it was, uh, it, why it played out the the the, the way it uh, the way it did, but it it wasn't the only area, quite honestly, where he had stumbles as a as a candidate. And it's quite possible also this 2015-16 wasn't his year. He's uh, mm-hmm. he represented a degree of establishment continuity. Sure, and as you saw with with both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, this was not a year of a uh, great public outpouring for establishment continuity. So. Uh, you, you mentioned Trump when when Trump was jabbing at, at Jeb and using his brother to uh, as a cudgel on him. Um, he 
took a page out of the Democrats' side of the aisle and said Iraq was a colossal blunder, and there were Republicans who flocked to that position. Uh, first, was Trump right that Iraq was the 2003 invasion of Iraq was a, a colossal blunder? And second, um, uh, how did he, as a Republican, say that when no Republican was willing to address that publicly in the past? Well, I wrote a book about the two, you know, about the Gulf War and the Iraq War called War of Necessity, War of Choice. And I was a great critic of the 2003 War of Necessity, meaning the, the 91 uh, Desert Shield That's right. um, after Saddam invaded Kuwait. Absolutely, which I thought was a war that we were right to fight and we fought it in the, the right way. Uh, very much a Colin Powell specific objective, overwhelming force, and then get out when you're done. Right. And it was Colin Powell was President Bush, Brent Scowcroft, James Baker, and Dick Cheney, by the way, was Secretary mm -hmm. of Defense. And it was a very effective team, but considerable means for limited goals. Uh, very different than the 2003 uh, Considerable Iraq. means for limited goals, as opposed to... Limited means for considerable goals. <laughs> and it... You know, it, needless to say, and I think history will be uh, extremely critical mm -hmm. of the uh, 2003. So I think it's legitimate to criticize it. And I think what it also shows is uh, a lack of consensus within the Republican Party about this country's role in the world. Mm -hmm. So you had those who thought the Iraq War was a great idea at the time, some in retrospect, many people who opposed it at the time, or certainly in retrospect. And I, I just find this part of a larger pattern that the most interesting conversations about foreign policy happen within the parties. There's not a Democratic versus Republican foreign policy debate. Mm -hmm. that, that, is, that is quite fascinating. Um, so let, let's move beyond the Bushes and, and move beyond um, – uh, spend a little more time. We, we mentioned the parallels between Brexit and, and Trump, but is it really fair to say that – uh, we're we're striking the same populist chord. Is it immigration and and lack of opportunity and and some wealth inequality? Are those the factors that are driving, uh, to a lesser degree, the Sanders um, candidacy? The short answer is yes. And you've had a, as you know, for many Americans, a lack of real increase in in living standards over the last decade, decade and a half. So, and this concerns about the inadequacy of uh, safety nets of retirement savings. Uh, a lot of social change in our society and, and record speed. So I think you add all this up, and there's a lot of Americans who feel uneasy, uncomfortable, threatened, anxious. Choose your your adjective. Mm -hmm. But I think it's it's widespread. And the fact that you've had outsiders like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders do as well as they've done in this political season tells you something. So let's talk. You mentioned Trump. Let's talk a little bit about I mentioned Trump, so I can't really pin that on you. Let, let's talk about our relationship with Mexico. My understanding has been that following the financial crisis, we saw uh, not immigration, but emigration. When we look at the amount of money being wired from the U.S. to Mexico, ostensibly by illegal Mexicans in the United States sending money back to their family, that's really taken a big drop, and, and the amount of illegal Mexicans coming over the border seems to have reversed. It seems to be going the opposite direction. So first question, are, are we really threatened by Mexico? And second question, are we really going to get them to pay for a wall? How is that going to work? Uh, as you say, there's net migration 
now in the direction of Mexico. It's a combination of a slowing economy here. The economy there is doing well, smaller family size mm-hmm. uh, there. So that, that's essentially what's uh, driving it. I also think that Mexico is something of a success story. The mm-hmm. fact that it's you've had several rotations of power. It's, it's an increasingly a uh, peaceful, legitimate democracy. You've got problems in some cases domestically with drug gangs, with guns and so forth, but that's really a lack of government capacity. And that's the kind of thing that over the years or decades, I believe, can and will uh, be solved. The fact that you don't have massive flows of people out of Mexico into the United States, I also see in some ways as a reflection that the NAFTA agreement worked. Next, Mexico's economy is doing better. It can increasingly support its own uh, population and a lot of goods which are made in one country or the other, as you know, because the supply chains are really made increasingly uh, in both. But to answer your question, no, there, I do not believe there will be a wall between the United States and and Mexico. If there were to be one, it wouldn't be paid for by uh, uh, Mexico. I would just make a larger point about immigration. I think we need to you know, break it down into three parts. We need to continue to have a flow of talented individuals into this country. It's a great driver of economic success no doubt. in this country. We've got to find a way to deal with 12 million people who have this uncertain status. We're not going to deport them. We've got to find a, some kind of a legitimate path, a conditional path to a legal status or, or citizenship. And we've got to have real security. And I'm not worried about economic migrants. I'm worried about terrorists. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure that the United States is secure in its borders, on its land borders, its air borders, and its sea borders, north, south, east, and west. Uh-huh. So we've got to be safe. And that, to me, is a, 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 a real challenge that we've got to uh, face up to. So you, you mentioned NAFTA. I, I have to come back to the Trans-Pacific um, Partnership that that is now stuck in congress for years uh, what happens if that doesn't pass and and what does that say to our trading partners right. and what are the odds that that under a new administration perhaps with a new congress uh, might might actually be fast tracked well, you're right that the agreement has been parked uh, in the congress there's zero chance it gets p- touched before the election if Hillary Clinton were to win, there's some chance it could get touched in the lame duck. More mm-hmm. likely, though, it comes if it comes up again, it would be sometime after the new president takes uh, takes office. If it if it doesn't pass, we'd pay a little bit of an economic price. The estimates are 0.3 or so percentage GDP, not a lot. The not bigger, like the Brexit cost, which is a couple of percent right, off their much GDP. Smaller, exactly, much smaller. I think the bigger cost would be strategic. Mm-hmm. and reputational. What it would sell to these other countries is the United States is no longer reliable, dependable, predictable country. Mm-hmm. And it would also be the biggest winner would be China. What the Chinese would say is, oh, great, we're, we're going to do a trade agreement with you. We're going to replace the United States right. economically. So I don't see people connecting the dots in this country. And if you want to be against TPP, that's your prerogative. But then you have to be honest about the strategic consequences and as well as the economic consequences of being against it. And it seems to me the case for it is so strong and there's ways of helping people who would conceivably or potentially be hurt by it through economic displacement. Well, then you help them with education, retraining, and transitional financial uh, assistance. But to throw the baby out with the bathwater is to me a, a strategic error of the first magnitude. Is that the deal that has to get done 
TPP passes, but here's money set aside for retraining of anybody sure. who loses their job or or whose factory closes uh, as a result of this. That's I mean, the way we passed. That's the way, quite honestly, that is the way we've passed previous trade agreements. NAFTA, NAFTA, and others is that there's always a side deal, if you will, mm-hmm. where you help people uh, who are like not everybody gains, not everybody wins from globalization. So as a society. We've got to take care of the people who lose from globalization. That's part of putting together a, uh, a majority that supports these agreements. So I never ask for forecasts or predictions. That's, that's part of our motto. No stock picks, no, no forecasts. But <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat over to that, that area a little bit and say, uh, is there any chance we see TPP passed over the next five years? The answer is yes. What you can't do is renegotiate it. You can't reopen it with 11 other countries. So if it were to pass, what it would take, a little bit what we've been talking about, is a side agreement between who's ever president and the Congress, uh-huh. which would deal with everything from various forms of assistance for affected workers, might also deal with with perceived problems with the agreement. For example, to deal with the potential that currencies are manipulated so other countries' exports are cheaper here. Might deal with government subsidies. So what I would expect is you'd have a side agreement mm-hmm. between the co- president and the Congress that would, together with the agreement, would provide a package that people, even skeptics, could support. So I think the odds of that happening over the next five years are better than even. Since you mentioned manipulating currency, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about China. Do you think China is a... Uh, persistent currency manipulator, no. or is that just an easy thing to paint them with? I think they were historically, but they've stopped. And in the last year or two, the evidence just isn't there. Mm-hmm. There's things to criticize China for. Such as? Well, obviously, we talked about it before. The question of property theft, intellectual property theft is an issue, mm-hmm. government subsidies, government investments, and so forth. So there's issues. I just, saw, I just saw a column somewhere, I can't recall, that Amazon is having a problem that they're flooded with Chinese knockoffs of, of right. name brand goods. So if we have a dumping problem from China, then we have something called the World Trade Organization, and we, t- we should take China to task in the WTO. Often we get rulings in our favor. Let's use the machinery. Not too long before we sat down to do this co- interview, there was a decision by a, a, an arbitration panel that basically says China has no historical rights to parts of the Chinese Sea that they're- the South China Sea. South China Sea that they're claiming as their own. Uh, what does this mean going forward? Is this is this have binding force? No. Uh, and is China still going to be flexing military muscle uh, off their own coast in, in, in the Pacific? Well, before the decision came down, the Chinese, knowing the decision was going to go against them, essentially preempted and said, we're going to ignore the decision. Mm-hmm. And before we feel too much holier than now about it, we would do the same thing as a major power. We wouldn't allow our foreign policy to be determined by some tribunal uh, like this. And so I don't, in that sense, there's no surprise. Now, the real question is not whether China goes along with the ruling. There was zero chance of that. The real question is whether in any way they adjust their behavior and stop some of the reclamation projects, the island rebuilding projects, whether we see a little bit more reasonableness on their behavior. And my hunch is there's a debate within China on that. Really? That historically over the last, if you think about it, 40 years, China's foreign policy has been quite restrained because mm-hmm. they've understood they needed a stable environment, external environment, in order to develop and grow economically. 
in the last couple of years, you're seeing a more assertive streak coming out of China. So my prediction is you're going to see something of an internal struggle between these two different schools of thought. Can, can we say it's been more than 40 years? It's been about 5,000 years of China not looking to project. <laughs> look at the, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire. Look, look no. at the Napoleonic. You never really got that from China. They were much more about taking care of their own well, within China's their own so borders. Well, so big territorially mm -hmm. and demographically that that's historically been an up. And now China's a major power. And the question is whether they want to have a certain influence or respect, if you will, accorded them in the uh, in the region. They want to assert certain things. And I think there the jury's out. But again, as growth has slowed significantly in China, again, there's two schools of thought. One says they're going to continue to be restrained because they can't afford to upset the economic mm -hmm. apple cart. The other is saying they're going to turn to a more nationalist foreign policy as a way of compensating for their, their slowing economic growth. And Western observers are divided. My hunch is the Chinese themselves are divided. Do, do the Chinese feel disrespected? Because I don't know anybody who's not a leader in technology, in, in economics, in any global perspective that doesn't look at China as a behemoth deserving of respect or, or are they still feeling a little bit of a, of a third world uh, chip on their shoulder? I'm not sure I put it quite that way because they're at one and the same time, both a developing country and a, and a power. But I do think they feel based on my conversations with them and what I read that this is still an American dominated world. There's some Chinese who think that the United States gets up in the morning trying to block China's path. That, really? Uh, sure. When we, for example, opposed over the last couple of years, the Chinese sponsored infrastructure investment bank in Asia. There's a certain Chinese feeling that, again, the United States wants to keep China in its place so it doesn't emerge as a full fledged uh, competitor. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a bit of that in, in Chinese, uh, I think, in, in the Chinese political debate. Oh. Aren't the Chinese already a full-fledged competitor? I wouldn't call them full-fledged, but I think they're a significant competitor, and they're the closest thing to an emerging rival great power that there, that there is in the world. I think the real question is whether they can pull it off and whether they can maintain the political stability at home amidst lower rates of economic growth. So I, I actually think China is an underappreciated political question mark over the next five to 10, to 10 years. Another potential surprise like Europe's Absolutely. been a surprise. Absolutely. Speaking of surprises, before I get to my favorite uh, questions, we really haven't talked much about Russia other than their little uh, Ukraine and Crimea uh, adventure. What the hell is going on in Russia? It seems that Putin is, speaking of wild cards, he sure. seems to, to delight in surprising the West Absolutely. on a regular basis. Absolutely, and there's nothing holding him back if he wants to surprise us tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Mr. Putin is, shall we say, unconstrained. He, uh, there's not a lot of checks and balances in the Russian political system. And economically and politically, he has consolidated power to an unprecedented degree. So he retains the capacity and the ability to, uh, to surprise if he decides that it's in his interest to do so. So you mentioned China is focusing on growth and political stability. What What's driving Russia? What motivates Putin? Putin has political stability at home. His economy is pretty much one-dimensional with energy. Mm -hmm. I think what he's trying for is uh, respect and attention. And I think he wants to uh, – he wants Russia to be uh, seen – 
perceived, judged to be a major power. It's why he is doing some of what he's doing in the Middle East. I think you've got to look at the last 25 years of history for many Russians, particularly of Putin's mentality, someone from the security services as a humiliating era. And what Putin wants to do is in some ways compensate for what he sees to be the humiliations of losing the Cold War, NATO enlargement, you name mm-hmm. it, that essentially Russia has been kicked off its pedestal. So during the Cold War, Russia was constantly cranking out world-class mathematicians, world-class code writers, world-class physicists. If they wanted to compete with the U.S. and China on an economic capacity, mm-hmm. uh, we talk about more STEM uh education, degrees, careers, they have that in spades. Why haven't they taken that huge human capital they have and create a a serious competitor to Chinese manufacturing, to Silicon Valley, to New York finance? They have all the components, but they just don't seem to have the, the philosophy there. There's a simple answer to your question. If they were going to free up their economy, to do exactly what you're talking about, it would have political consequences. One of the advantages of having such a heavy state-run economy with so much mm-hmm. of the wealth in oil and gas is the government controls things. If you had a real economy where people were starting up businesses, where they could be independent, they had sources of capital outside the control of government, they would then demand political freedom. Vladimir Putin does not want to oversee a Russia where he does not keep control. But that wouldn't be his headache. That would be a 20 or 30 year transformation that would make Russia an economic power. He's not going to start that process. He is not going to start that because you would begin to create momentum that would weaken the share of power or the relative role of the state. That is just not his vision of his country. Isn't that the eventual disposition that's going to happen in, in Russia? Maybe not next year or 10 years from now, but well, uh, are they going to have a future beyond energy? It has to be, but they're not, they haven't, the tentative steps they made a few years ago in that direction, they were going, they were going to create a Gorbachev kind of, or after, after they're a few years under Medvedev and Putin, there, there was some experimentation about a high tech area around right. Moscow and essentially they pulled the rug out from under it because the same people who had the creative ideas to start businesses had dangerous creative ideas about politics. Huh, that's fascinating. Let's jump to some of our, our favorite questions. Um, I was going to ask what you did before you started at, at DOD, but really you came right out of school and went pretty much straight into government, right? I've been in it like my entire career. is. It's a very American career. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few countries where you don't have to make— But for the Oxford part— <laughs> But it's very American in the sense that you don't have to make a single choice. Like if you're in Europe, uh-huh. you would either have to be a career diplomat or an academic. And you'd never – academics don't People get People go serve. back and forth here all the time. Here you go back and forth. We, we call them in and outers. So I've been in and outer. I've worked in four administrations. I've worked on the Hill. I've taught a couple of times at universities. I've been at various think tanks, including the current one, the Council on Foreign Relations. So I've been incredibly lucky because I've been able to follow this very flexible – set of, uh, you know, jobs. So who were some of your early mentors? You mentioned you started in in Senator Pell's office. Uh, Who mentored you uh, diplomatically and politically? I wouldn't say uh, he did, though I admire, you know, we disagreed on a lot, but I admired his principle and I admired, it was very old school. Claiborne Pell was a patrician. Mm -hmm. 
And for him, politics weren't a blood sport. Politics were what gentlemen did. And it was a higher calling. He Noblesse oblige. Totally noblesse a... oblige. And there was, you treated your opponents with respect and decency. It was all very mannered. It was mm-hmm. all uh, very gentlemanly. It was a very different uh, world. My mentors were more teachers in terms of uh, people I studied with at, say, Oberlin, where I was an undergraduate. I had a fantastic teacher of uh, comparative religion. I had my teachers. What, at, give us a name. Oh, a man named Tom Frank, mm-hmm. great professor of uh, New Testament. And it's what got me interested in the Middle East because I went off ultimately to do an archaeological dig, which is how I got interested in the uh, Middle East. I had a series of wonderful professors at uh, Oxford, a historian named Albert Harani, another named Michael Howard, uh, Alistair Bakken, uh, Headley Bull, one of the great political scientists of the 20th century. Uh, so all these people had a... Impact. I think the person who probably had the greatest impact on me in terms of my career was Brent, Brent Scowcroft, mm-hmm. who was the national security advisor at the White House. for Under Bush, Bush 41. 41, and I was the senior person for the Middle East and the Persian Gulf and South Asia. And working with Brent and watching how he balanced the two sides of the job, he was both an advisor or counselor to the president, but he was also the person who dispensed due process and made the system work and how he balanced advocacy and fairness had a tremendous impact uh, on me. He He's legendary. I mean, yeah, he, he's the he gold is, standard. He is the gold standard. Right. And and this year, surprisingly, crossed party lines mm-hmm. to endorse uh, Hillary Clinton, which I, I was, I should say I was shocked, but uh, not surprised. Is that a good way to describe that? It's a good way to put uh, it. It, it, it. He really is. You go back and read some of his history. Uh, he's a rock star. There's no other way to put it. He is the gold standard of people who have held that critical job of national security advisor. It's very hard to get the balance right, to be an advisor, yet to be someone who all your colleagues trust to make the process fair and accountable. And Brent pulled off that balance better than any other individual I've ever seen. So we talked about mentors and and professors. Uh, What thinkers have influenced your approach to foreign policy? I'd I'd single out two or three. One would be Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. Kissinger's books are better than anyone else's at going from particular moments of history to taking a step back and making larger judgments or conclusions. So when I write, I do my best to do the same. His uh, most recent book, Tom Keen, cannot stop talking about it. He, the one on been, world order. Yeah, he's been lavishing praise on it for no, months. For, uh, for good reason. Uh, so Henry's one. Second is a man named Headley Bull. I mentioned him before. Professor. Most, professor, Australian academic. Wrote what I think is the single best book ever written in the last 50 or 100 years about my field called The Anarchical Society. Anarchical society. And it's a whole idea of international relations at any one moment is always a balance between forces of anarchy and forces of society, things coming together, things going apart. And so I found Headley a great influence in his. And then uh, some of my former colleagues when I taught at the Kennedy School at Harvard named uh, Dick Neustadt and Ernie May, and they did, they did a book called Thinking in Time. And the subtitle was something like The Uses of History for Decision Makers. And the whole idea was how you could and should study and use history to shape uh, challenges that might come into your uh, your inbox and how to use it and not abuse it. And I think it's a, a fantastic primer. Thinking for, in time. Yeah, for anyone who's going to be in a position of decision-making. Newstat and who is that? Ernie May. May. All right. 
since we're talking about books, so so these are the thinkers who have influenced you. What what are some of your favorite books? What do you like, whether it's related to your field or outside of it, and um, fiction or nonfiction? Well, I've just given you the uh, my favorite books in my field. Uh, yeah, I like reading biography as much as anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been reading much recently because I've been so busy writing. And when I write books, it's very hard to read because you're you're kind of more in a transmit than receive sure. uh, mode. Uh, and then, in terms of, I, I don't read a whole lot of fiction, though. I I have read the entire Jack Reacher. Uh-huh. Uh huh. My wife loves those. Yeah, I like those too. Uh, my favorite line of his is, "I'm so cool, you can skate on me." <laughs> But, um, Did the first movie, uh, she said Tom Cruise was miscast. Yeah, no, because should have been a big a tough foot, guy. He's a foot too short, right? And it it, it ought to be a big bruising uh, uh, guy. But I I don't read a whole lot of fiction. I mean, I'll, but I you know I'll pick up the New Yorker every week, and mm-hmm. um, I like you know more nonfiction. I think I I, I gravitate. Uh, uh, towards, but if I can read anything, I usually like reading um, biography. I find that uh, the to me the most interesting place to go. So, what what do you see as having changed in the world of diplomacy over the past twenty five or thirty years? What 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 are the most significant shifts that have occurred? Uh, a couple come to mind. One is uh, you know, firstly, at the end of the Cold War, twenty five years ago, so and the whole structure of international relations changed. Second of all, you've had a whole trend in terms of uh, away from concentration of power. Mm-hmm. We now have so many actors and players in the world who can make a difference. It's you know, Whether it's the Gates Foundation or groups like Doctors Without Borders to uh, CNN to Bloomberg to, again, dozens of countries around the world or, or groups like ISIS. So the, the chessboard, if you will, to use a terrible cliched image, is much more crowded with many different types of things. I think also putting on my former policymaker hat, it first struck me during the uh, Gulf War 25 years ago, the 24-7 news cycle. Mm-hmm. I remember the, that was the first time the CNN effect was real. I recall that explicitly. And suddenly you had one news cycle. You couldn't wait. And that anything said in one place was heard everywhere. So there was no longer uh, narrow casting. Everything was broadcast everywhere. So it created, and that was before social media, and now you've got social media, so you, you, you're much more uh, exposed and you, you feel much less in control as a, uh, as a policymaker. And I, so I think it's gotten tougher because also elites have broken down. Sure. I think the entire environment of making policy and carrying it out has become more decentralized. It's, it's, look, it's the reason you mentioned that you were nice enough to mention before. I have this book coming out in January called The World in Disarray. But I think objectively, if you were going to measure the trends in the world, things have gotten messier. Things have gotten much less orderly, uh, whether at the global level or the regional level or the domestic level. So those are the changes uh, of the recent past. What do you see as the changes going forward? What's the next shift that's going to take place in international relations? I feel like Yogi Berra, predictions are always difficult about the future here. But uh, <laughs> one is we've seen elements of it, I think, with the globalization debate. We talked to you and I at some length about Brexit and as, as well as about trade in this country. I don't think that's a short-term thing. I think that debate about how to, how societies and individuals are to navigate globalization, that could become a dominant debate for some time. 
I think the possibility for a North Korea issue, we're going to wake up in a couple of years and North Korea is going to be able to put nuclear warheads on missiles that can reach the United States. What are we going to do about uh, that? Terrorists can at some point get a hold of some truly awful uh, weapon systems. What about that? We talked a little bit about a potential domestic crisis in China. You could have weakening within the uh, EU. I'm sorry. I I don't mean to be – my kids call me Debbie Downer. but uh, Hey, these are legitimate threats. These are things that that civilized societies have to think about and figure out ways to protect themselves. And I'm more worried about the potential downside than I am optimistic about the potential upside. Again, it's – It's an asymmetrical risk. A small possibility, but with a real outsized impact. Absolutely. And and there's more things that could go wrong than that, than that could go right. And that's what worries me. So our last two questions, because I know they're, they're champing at the bit to get you out of here. So a millennial or a recent college grad comes to you and says, I'm interested in diplomacy. <laughs> yes, sir. What sort of advice would you give them? Two things. Glad you asked me that. One is read some history. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's too easy to graduate from too many of America's colleges and universities and not have any grounding in history. Second of all, uh, this will get me in trouble, but I, I, it's <laughs> it's my general advice to millennials, which they need a little bit more patience. There's a uh, a rush to arrive and an expectation of. Uh, you know, I think it's probably because too many of them got participation trophies right. when they were playing uh, soccer. But I think that people have got. <laughs> You're not to, the first person who's brought that up. In okay, this show. but I, uh, but I think there's got to be a um, a willingness to pay your dues a little bit. I know mm-hmm. that makes me a dinosaur, and I apologize, but there's something to be said for slogging and to working your way through and taking positions where you the print the principal measure of the 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 value of the job is how much you learn. And our final question, which will make Sam very happy in there. Um, what is it that you know about foreign affairs and international relations today that you wish you knew when you started 30 years ago? That there's nothing inevitable, that everything is up for grabs, and the two biggest forces out there are people and ideas. And if you can... People and ideas. And if you can uh, come up with some ideas and harness them, to the right people, you can make a real difference. And I've seen this in White Houses or anywhere else. Uh, There's almost nothing that's inevitable. And the good side of that is that you can make a real positive difference. And the bad side of that is bad bad stuff can happen. And people can uh, drive things off the the rails. I didn't realize how much of history in a funny sort of way gets decided day in, day out. The historical forces are there. I get that. There's large historical forces, but within that, there's a tr- human agency. The difference that people can make uh, for better and for worse is extraordinary. Richard, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. If you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch and see the other 98 or so conversations that we've had over the past uh, couple of years. Uh, I have to thank my... Producer and recording engineer, Charlie Vollmer, my booker, uh, Taylor Riggs, and my head of research, Michael Batnick, for all their assistance. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.